Hello, my name is Martin Kwiatkowska and I'm an associate professor at Umeå University in Sweden. Being a woman working in a male-dominated profession, I also faced some negative stereotypes at work, so I care more personally about these topics as well. Academia is still very much of a boys' club. Women have only been allowed at European universities since the early 1900s, and still today, only 20% of professors in the European Union are female. Thank you for listening to this episode of Researching Diverse, the podcast. I am Tuja Aral. I'm a PhD student in the Inclusive Education Department at the University of Potsdam. Today, Jana and I are hosting Marta Miklikowska, who is an associate professor at Umeå University in Sweden. So for our listeners, what can you expect from this episode? We talked to Marta about prejudice, empathy, and intergroup contact. We reflected on whether understanding these topics, these concepts, would help us create more just and equal schools and societies. Besides these topics, we also talked about the role of gender, stereotypes in social science. Marta answered the question of why women are still underrepresented in higher positions in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields. This topic is also very uh, personally very important to us as a podcast team consisting of women researchers in social science. So I really enjoyed our talk and I hope you do too. So let's get started with the episode. Welcome Marta and thanks for being here. As in every episode we'll start talking about the past. Why did you become interested in the topic of prejudice and intergroup contact? Well, thank you for having me here. It's really nice to be here. I guess I came into this topic by coincidence, but I think that my background and personal experiences sort of helped me to develop an interest over time. So I come from Poland, a country that suffered the atrocities of Second World War and that destroyed the country's ethnic diversity. And some of my relatives were in a camp or were taken away as, as a forced labor during that time. So the topics of sort of intergroup relations and diversity were all around me. But later I also emigrated from Poland and lived in a few different countries. And, you know, I formed uh, cross-ethnic friendships with uh, people from various cultures that challenged my own stereotypes. And, you know, cross-ethnic friendships is the most positive form of intergroup contact. But also as an immigrant working in these countries, I also became a target of some, you know, anti-immigrant attitudes. And being a woman working in a male-dominated profession, I, I also faced some negative stereotypes at work. So I think over time, these kind of experiences also helped me to develop more or care more personally about these topics as well. So that means, if I understand correctly, that you were kind of, it was one topic that kind of presented itself, but you could kind of connect it to personal experiences as well. And that kind of made you more interested in finding out more about it. Yeah, exactly. So I was connected to this project where some part of this project was on the themes of intergroup relations. So I sort of jumped into it and then, you know, somehow connected it, yeah, as you say, to my personal experiences and background. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I was wondering, so why did you become a researcher at all? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I guess it's also by coincidence, actually. Mm -hmm. I started on this path because my future supervisor, uh, Professor Helena Hurme, asked me if I was interested in doing a PhD in a project that she was involved in. And at the time, I was working on my master's thesis as an exchange student in Finland. And, you know, I didn't have a plan for myself for after graduating, like many of us, <laughs> I think. And so I thought that I could give PhD a try. It wasn't that far away from doing master thesis. So I could, you know, I thought, oh, I could do it maybe, you know. 
Yeah. But before she asked me, I don't think I was actually properly aware of, you know, that um, research was a profession that you could actually choose to do, at <laughs> least not within psychology. I know it sounds funny now, but back then I think... To me, it sounds like research was something that, you know, biochemists could do full time, but not really psychologists. So me doing actually a PhD was kind of half chance. And since then, I sort of worked for various projects and, and got help from along the way from my mentors, female mentors and some senior colleagues. And if not for that, I don't think, if not for, you know, chance and help of others, I don't think I would actually become a researcher. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think it really resonates, well, at least with me, but I think other psychologists, because you usually start studying and the only idea you have of it is it's clinical, right? So you will, yeah. will work in a clinical setting or people even confuse, you know, psychiatry with psychology. Like, what is the difference? Who can now give out the medication and who can't? And like, it's really, there's a lot of, it's quite unclear when you start studying that topic that you can actually do a lot of research on different topics. So I think that's really interesting. No, no, I think so too. Yeah, that's not uncommon that it goes like that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I was wondering, you already talked a bit about some negative attitudes that you faced along the way and so on. So I was wondering, what were the challenges that you encountered on your way of becoming the researcher that you are today? Uh, I guess quite a few challenges. I mean, the first that leaps to mind is, of course, imposter syndrome, where you, you know, doubt your own skills and accomplishments. So, mm -hmm. you know, me coming from a working class family, I felt from the beginning quite intimidated by the university context, by the big lecture halls, by smart people all around. And, you know, I didn't have a feeling that I have something interesting to say or that anybody was interested in the things I had to say. But I think more importantly, I face negative comments or stereotype comments about women in academia that fed these kind of feelings of self-doubt. Mm -hmm. So when you hear from some of your male colleagues or supervisors, things like that women are not cut for academia and you should better find a rich husband, that your achievements wow. are based on your looks, uh, that you don't know what you're talking about in the presence of others listening to your talk, or that science requires talent that women simply don't have. I mean... It blows your mind, first of all, but it also, over time, I mean, it affects your confidence as a young scholar, especially when you hear it from, you know, educated people, educated men, trained in objectivity and specialized in social sciences. So, yeah, it kind of feeds this self-doubt. And I think these kind of stereotype comments are one of the main reasons for the still low numbers of women in higher positions in academia, I think. On the one hand, these kind of comments cause that women doubt themselves when they apply for positions, with men often, you know, pushing through with less merits. But on the other hand, these kind of comments or stereotypes are behind discrimination of women. Uh, women are assessed as less competent than men with the same qualifications, and and as a result, they get, you know, shorter contracts, fewer grants, and so on. So I think the, you know, imposter syndrome fed by these kind of negative stereotypes it was quite a big challenge, especially at the beginning. Another challenge was, I guess, uncertainty of the academic career. So I know it varies from different environments, but sometimes when you start, you don't always get the training that you need. You're sort of expected to figuring out <laughs> how to do research. And so this kind of situation is a bit uncertain. And after graduating, you also realize that if you want to be an academic researcher full time, you, for the next 10 or 15 years, you have to apply for grants and you were never prepared on how to do this either. So you're again yeah. in this kind of uncertain situation. Can I do it? How do I position myself to this uncertainty? 
but also there were just like basic challenges, you know, not having sometimes enough money to pay the rent, but still wanting to help my family back home in Poland or having to build networks from scratch in different countries where you move and you don't have your, you know, family and old friends for support. So that's quite exhausting, actually. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And I think also this might be something that people are not so aware of, what it means to be in academia or as a researcher that usually go from short-term contract to short-term contract, especially once you have, well, first you do your PhD. And in some countries you get paid for doing your PhD, in some countries you don't. And then so also within Europe, there's quite big differences. And even if you finish your PhD, there's no guarantee that you will have an immediate follow-up job at a university anywhere. So that mm. makes it very uncertain financially, of course, for yourself, but also personally, because you might have to, just in order to be employed, if you want to stay in that field, you might have to move to a different country or work between countries, right? That's also an experience that you have, I mm. think, to actually live in a different country than you work. Yeah. So I think those are all things that people are not so aware of when it comes to yeah, being a researcher. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's so true. And also, I think it, it varies greatly between fields. I mean, I, I think that, you know, for instance, in medicine and technology, where there is you know, a lot of money and a long-term projects, it's probably maybe more common that people stay for a longer time in one place because there is a possibility like that. But research in my field, the psychology, is, is very much like a, a world of art where you, you know, go from one gig to another and gig lasts maybe a year or two years and then you search for another gig and, and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that is a really interesting comparison. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we would, yeah, I think sometimes we would like to see ourselves as artists as well. Because <laughs> it does require quite some creativity also, right? To be to be a researcher. I think so, but the stereotype of researcher is not the creative type, I don't think. <laughs> Still. One more question I had regarded to this is maybe what did you learn along the way? So now we talked about the challenges that you encountered, but maybe also like what did you take away from all of this journey for yourself? Yeah, except for, I guess, learning the skills that I needed to do research, I learned more about academia, which helped me sort of deal with some of these challenges. It helped me to learn that, you know, self-doubt actually affects about 70% of people in general in early career stages. I think it sort of normalized this feeling for me. But it also helped me to learn that, at least in academia, this imposter syndrome or self-doubt Disproportionately affects women and individuals with working class and or immigrant background because universities are still not very diverse in, in this respect. So in terms of gender, I mean, academia is still very much of a boys club. Uh, women have only been allowed at European universities since the early 1900s and still today only 20% of professors in the European Union are female. In the UK, for instance, less than half of 1% of professors are black females. And in Sweden, there is no field where female professors are a majority. So, I mean, given this situation, sexism and, and racism are quite high. And studies show that, for instance, in, in terms of gender, female, 50% of women in academia experience gender harassment compared to 15% of men. And that, of, for instance, in Sweden, of all occupations, academia has the fourth highest level of gender harassment, which is not really very good for us. So you realize that in such context, it's quite normal to feel that you don't belong, you know, and, and to feel that, that, to doubt your skills and accomplishments. But I also, you know, learned more about academic career itself, that it's quite uncertain and competitive. 
And I think knowing this helped me to, to work on my transferable skills and not put everything in this academic basket and to just to be more flexible in case, you know, this is something that I don't want to continue with or I can't do it or something like that. Yeah. So with all this uncertainty and knowing all of these things, what advice would you give to other young researchers who are just starting out? So this is a bit of a grim outlook. <laughs> But then what advice that you could give maybe? Yeah, I guess I have a few pieces of advice. I would, For me, I think having good mentors is quite important. So I would say... Uh, look for mentors that care about your career, about your productivity, teach you skills, teach you writing, help you write better, uh, teach you analysis and things like that. Uh, having female mentors, I think, is particularly beneficial or actually studies show that, that it's particularly beneficial for, for female junior scholars because then they can identify with their mentors and this counters these feelings of self-doubt and this imposter syndrome. And also it makes that you can talk openly with your mentor about various problems in academia, about these stereotype comments and biases instead of being left on your own to deal with this and or pretend that there are no problems because we know we have policies in place and female or women's issues have been resolved in the 70s and now everything <laughs> is, is, is fine, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so good mentors is important. Also, I would say look for environments that align with your priorities. So whatever your, I mean, it can be anything. Having a mentor that pushes publications, gives you publications, helps you to co-author papers, or having colleagues with whom you can be yourself or living in a nice place. I mean, whatever your priorities are, I think it's quite important to look for places that fit these priorities. And if you feel that you don't quite fit in where you are, I think it's important to network outside of your organization or department or even a country to see what else there is, because there is quite a variety of different environments. So it's good to know better where to go. And I guess being prepared, it's something that I would appreciate if someone told me a long time ago, you know, that if you want to be an academic researcher full time, be prepared that you will have to be either very entrepreneurial and find, uh, you know, financing for your own projects, or you have to work for projects of others, which will imply moving quite often. So as we said before, you know, academic research in my field in psychology uh, relies on this kind of gigs that are one or two years long. So that, uh, you know, preparing yourself mentally for this, I think, is quite important and deciding which path you want to follow and if you want to follow any of them at all. And finally, you know, being persistent and not, not paying too much attention, I guess, to these stereotype comments is important. But also knowing that academic research is just a job and it's not a religion that you have to sacrifice yourself for. <laughs> it's not a long, long, lifelong commitment, you know. So if you happen not to want to do it at, at any point or not be able to do it for any reason, there are other opportunities. So I work on your transferable skills uh, to not to be too dependent on the whims of academia and not to have to put up with things that you really shouldn't put up with. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that sums it up also really nicely what we've talked about with other guests in our podcast. So uh, Linda Zhuang in our first episode, she also mentions the importance of mentoring and how it's really important to also recognize your own potential for being a mentor for other younger people oh, cool. that sometimes yeah. we don't realize that, yeah, for any student that we teach or for anyone, we can actually also, we are potential mentors as well and to take that also seriously.
so maybe I can already continue with present. And so this brings us to our next session, the present. Which paper did you bring today? I wrote the paper by John Dixon and colleagues named Beyond the Prejudice. Our negative evaluation is the problem and is getting us to like another more, the solution. Uh, it's published in Behavioral and Bra- Brain Sciences. Great. So why is this paper an outstanding paper for you? I mean, there's so many great things about this paper that makes it an outstanding paper. I love the format. I think it really stands out. It's not a typical, you know, collecting data, presenting results kind of paper. It's more of a discussion paper where the authors sort of summarize the research on prejudice and interrupt contact. And they present their critical view of this research. And then scholars from all around the world that specialize in this field actually comment on this view, on this opinion. And then the original authors respond to these comments. And I think this kind of, you know, exchange of opinions on a theoretical basis, not actually just discussing some single data, but let's talk about what this research actually means and where it guides us and what we should be doing next. I mean, that's so rare in our fast-paced science, right? We don't get we don't get the comfort of sitting down and just let's talk about what this means. It's we just, you know, produce one paper after another. So I think this is really this format really stands out for me and I know that it attracted a lot of attention of others and it inspired the new research in the field. And I think it has done that because of it and that's another outstanding feature of this research. I think it has inspired others because it shakes up these kind of conventional views on prejudice and intergroup contact in psychology. It made me at least think about, you know, whether the questions that we're asking bring us any closer to what our actual aim is, which is probably creating more equal and just societies. So, for instance, one, one issue that the, the authors of this paper raise is, you know, we spend so much time as researchers just focusing on attitudes of majority groups towards minorities. And by doing, I mean, maybe we didn't mean to, but by doing this, we sort of imply that improving these attitudes will sort of reduce injustice in societies. And the authors sort of doubt this. They point out in modern Western democracies, the majorities largely talk positively about minorities. They largely have positive attitudes towards diversity, and still this kind of inequalities very much persist. I think the authors think that it's not so much, in these countries at least, it's not so much the attitudes that are a problem, but persistent stereotypes about groups and about professional and social roles that we have, because these stereotypes are used to sort of justify inequality. We have a stereotype of a leader that, again, has this kind of typically male traits, dominant, dispassionate, and that affects our hiring decisions, for instance. So a woman is judged as less suitable for a leadership position than a male with equivalent or same qualifications, sometimes even same resume, (laughs) because of a picture of a leader that we have in our heads. It overlaps more with how we picture a typical man than a woman. So it gives sort of extra points to male candidates from the get-go. And so the authors think that we should sort of maybe shift a slightly focus in our research from attitudes to exactly these kind of stereotypes of social and professional roles. And another issue that they say is that we, uh, we focus so much on studying how positive contact between majorities and minorities improves attitudes. And again, by doing this, we sort of implied that this is the main mechanism by which we change societies. We will just put people into contact and this will improve their attitudes and this will lead to more just societies. And again, authors doubt that because they say that, you know, positive contact doesn't actually increase or not very much, at least. It doesn't increase majority groups' engagement 
in actually initiatives that aim at reducing inequality. It doesn't increase their engagement in protests. It doesn't increase their engagement in strikes, in support for affirmative action, or any actually initiatives that aim at speeding up this process of social change. And also it has quite effects on the majority members, but actually this positive contact has ironic effects on minority group members because ironically it makes them more passive. It makes them feel like, okay, now the majority members like us. We have friends in the majority advantage group, so they will do something to reduce inequality, to help us, right? And that's rarely the case. (laughs) So the authors, again, think that we should focus more on maybe other methods than just intergroup contacts and other methods of achieving social change, such as collective action or, you know, assigning organizational responsibility for change. But about the content of the paper, you said it's not always about attitudes, that we're mostly focusing on attitudes. And you said it's also like the stereotypes. But one thing that is like, I'm really Hmm. curious right now, just gonna ask about it. Do you think like challenging stereotypes would also connect uh, majority, ethnic majority people to recognize the systematic injustices? Because, yeah, so I mean, like, okay, the minority, like, we know that we shift the focus and the minorities are mostly engaging with this collective action and fighting with um, systematic injustice. And do you think this research, the stereotype research, could lead us to this, okay, majority people are taking actions in, towards a systematic injustice? Yeah, I think what more research on stereotype would show was, first of all, to make people aware that we do have stereotypes and that these stereotypes are favoring some groups over others. I don't think that a lot of people are aware that we have this stereotype of a scientist and how it influences our environments and our decisions. I think the stereotype research has also the power of showing, of connecting these stereotypes to actually discriminatory behaviors in hiring, in assessing competence of other people, in how our environments are created that are favorable towards some groups and not others that make, for instance, women face so much more harassment than men in at least in academia or leadership positions. So I think it would definitely make people more reflective of how our reality looks like and what it leads to. And so it makes, I think, people more aware of the systematic racism, systematic sexism that we that we still have. And I think when we have a sort of a, such a good picture of the stereotypes and discrimination around concrete roles, uh, professional or social roles, I think we are in better position to actually you know, put pressure on different organizations, institutions to do something about it, to do appoint more uh, managers or professors from underrepresented groups. I think if we rely on our subjective experience, I don't think that's enough. I think the research that actually shows this is so important when you want to do something about it. Yeah, I think that makes sense because I think this, all these policies and institutes are shaped based on the stereotypes. Okay, what the researcher looks like. Okay, these are the policies that we will provide. It's a male dominant characters and policies are shaped that way and protects the behaviors or actions. I think we should feel sort of compassion to ourselves. I mean, uh, men have dominated academia for centuries. Women have not been allowed at universities at all. And I mean, men prefer to work with men. I mean, (laughs) that's how it is. And we have to sort of counter that and we have to, yeah, make them aware that they're not as objective as they think they are, even though it's maybe painful. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very great answer. So we have talked about this paper very extensively and it's, quite also like academic language but I wanted to ask you if you had to explain this paper to your grandma how would you do this? 
<laughs> Great question. I would say, look, grandma, still today, some groups are treated unfairly in societies. For example, when they apply for jobs, women or immigrants are judged as less competent than men or native people with identical skills. And the authors of this paper wonder, what can we do about it? What, how can we reduce this unfair treatment? And they think that, you know, encouraging men to like women, for instance, won't change this unfairness because men can still judge women as less competent, even though they like them. So the authors think that it's more effective if women and immigrants and other underrepresented groups talk to one another about their unfair treatment and work together for the changes in the workplaces, hopefully with the help of friendly men and members of the advantage groups, of course. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. the I think that's the, the solidarity between... I think it's a lot important to improve this attitude stereotypes and negative behaviors. So how did this paper impact your work or way of thinking? Well, I guess it made me want to study or include other outcomes than attitudes in my own research. For instance, to examine when intergroup contact can make members of advantage groups actually engage in activities to reduce inequality, such as protests, campaigns, you know, support for affirmative action, more progressive policies or to examine whether contact affects how people think about reasons for inequality, whether they think, still think after the contact that it's fault of immigrants or women because they don't work hard enough, or whether they think that it's a fault of systematic discrimination that women or, or immigrants face in the society. I think if positive contact doesn't change the way we think about inequality, then it may be unlikely that it will actually, that we'll do something to combat it. Yeah. And also I want to connect this to our, like the main point of our podcast, like researching the diversity. And why do you think this paper is important for the field of diversity research? I guess it shakes up these conventional views on intergroup contact and prejudice in diversity research. As one researcher, Elizabeth Page Gould, uh, tweeted during Black Lives Matter protests, she said something like, intergroup contact is the study of desegregation. We successfully got trapped for decades arguing whether it works, whether it reduces prejudice. And it actually doesn't matter. Segregation is inhumane. And what matters is making desegregation work so that marginalized people can thrive. And I think the message of this article is quite similar. Our aim shouldn't be only to study how contact improves the attitudes, but we should study how to make the members of both advantaged and disadvantaged groups to actively fight inequalities. It sort of nudges us in this more activist direction, I guess. After all, it has been written by a social psychologist. So. Yeah, I think that is really interesting. So that keeps coming up, I think, when I listen to all of your answers is that Apparently, there cannot be research on diversity without activism. Is that something that you would say is true? Oh, I haven't thought about that in this way. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But how were you thinking about it? Yeah, I think that's something that, well, I've personally been struggling with. I think mostly, very much so, also during the Black Lives Matter protests, I really started questioning my own role as a researcher and how much yeah. as someone who is actually doing research on diversity issues, how much is actually should be part of my job description to also, you know, do, mm. be activistic about it. and to. Mm. But I think on the same hand, I see how it contradicts 
shifts the expectations that researchers are always, you know, objective. And, mm. you know, whenever I'm asked for a clear solution, then always the answer is, well, it depends. You know, <laughs> from research, there's never a super clear answer. But it's like, well, for a certain percentage of a group, we can say with a certain certainty <laughs> that, you know, certain results in this situation might, you know, so it's we learn to be very careful. Vague. <laughs> vague, which is good to not give false claims. And at the same time, mm. I find it difficult because for me, activism needs strong standpoints. So you need to choose a side sometimes, even though there's always the gray in between. But well, if I go onto the street to protest, I am actively choosing a right from a wrong, you know? So, and I think mm. that to me makes it that I've been personally struggling with to kind of combine my own personal search for how can I be an activist while at the same time being a researcher and staying true to the, you know, these mm. principles that I also believe in just as much, you know? Yeah, but I also think that to some extent this feeling that you have is because of the stereotypes as well. I think there should be a way of being socially engaged and being a scientist, but somehow the stereotype of a scientist that we have had thus far somehow exclude this social engagement. You're supposed to be distant person just working on some irrelevant aspect of our life for your, you know, entire life. And I think research is not always vague. I mean, the, we have done extensive research on inter intergroup contact, we can say something solid about it. We can give some recommendations that are that we can be pretty certain about, you know. So I think it's also one of the things that I would like to see change in academia, actually. That I, I think it's slowly changing. I mean, we are already expected to, you know, communicate our research to the public. That's something new, you know. Before, back in the days, academia was much more closed and it was the public didn't really hear about our findings so much. And now we are expected to do that. So I think that's already the first step towards this more being more socially engaged. And I think that will change with more women in academia and in higher positions, that it's going to be more okay and more normalized to also try to do something about issues that you care about. This brings us to our next section, the future. This already kind of ties into our question. What changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding, well, first research on prejudice, for example, and intergroup contact? Yeah, I guess except for more focus on activism, like we said before, not only attitudes and contact, but actually activism and support for progressive policies. I'd like to see more studies on these stereotypes around the various social and professional roles. I mean, we have quite a lot of studies on leadership roles, but there are so many other roles we could be studying. And for instance, if we look at the role of a scientist, I mean, as we said before, women have been allowed at European universities only since the early 1900s. And still today, only 20% of professors in European Union are female. And I think this has consequences for the kind of stereotype of a scientist that we have. So we still associate scientists with typical male traits. And what I think is really sad that even if you ask young children to draw a scientist, this is this famous draw a scientist test, nine out of ten boys draw a male character. And although girls are slightly a bit better and they draw a female when they are very young, with age, when they get older, you know, at age 16, they catch up with boys and they draw a male character as well. So I think that's super sad because that's already a reflection of internalized this reality and internalized stereotype. 
and how they already see what their possibilities in lives are. And even faculty members themselves think that to be, in order to be in scientists, you need an innate talent that simply can be taught, which is a sort of a bias against women because they supposedly don't have such a talent. And I think these stereotypes, I would like to see more research on this because I think the stereotypes of social roles are important because they underlie discriminations of individuals that belong to groups that don't fit this stereotype. So again, if we look at academia in terms of gender, studies show that female scientists are discriminated in job applications, that a male applicant is judged as more competent than a female candidate with exactly the same resume, just a different name. And so the male candidate is offered a larger salary and more mentoring than a female applicant. Studies also show that female scientists are discriminated in grant proposals, that they have uh, 7% lower chances of getting funding and when they do get less money than male applicants. And that this is, again, due to the perceived competence of a male and female candidate, that the reviewers who judge grant applications perceive female applicants as less competent, even though objectively they have equivalent competence or similar competence score as the male candidate. So, for instance, they have the same amount of publications or quality of publications, but in order to get the same score on perceived competence as male candidates, they would have to be twice as productive. And finally, also studies show that female scientists face more harassment at work, roughly 50% of women compared to 15% of men. I think that's important because when we have a good picture of this situation, we can then better explain it and put pressure on different organizations to do something about it, to appoint more managers and professors from underrepresented groups. And that immediately connects to the next question, so which Concrete changes would you then like to see in the upcoming years in academia? Yeah, so <laughs> unfortunately there are various excuses for the lack of women in academia that put blame on women themselves, you know, that they don't have a talent or interest in doing science. For instance, Harvard President Lawrence Summers famously claimed at a conference some years ago that the barriers to women's advancement in academia have been removed and their underrepresentation may stem from innate differences in ability between genders. And I personally find it super offensive because research clearly shows equal talent and interest between genders. Actually, research shows that female students outperform male students as far as grades go, including STEM subjects such as maths and physics. So this shows equal ability and potential for doing science. And I mean, now for decades, the gender ratio among PhDs across various disciplines has been around 50-50, at least in countries like Sweden or Nordic countries. But despite all of this, as you move up the career ladder, there are fewer and fewer women. And again, some people try to explain it with this leaky pipeline with women's choice to have children. But, you know, yet male professors and deans are parents as well. Somehow it doesn't stop their advancement in a career. And also Nordic countries that have very generous maternity leaves so should allow females, if this was only about children, it should allow females to just go have children and then come back and continue their careers. But these countries, despite this, are among Europe's, Europe's worst in terms of females at top positions. So, I mean, clearly there is something else going on than just interest, just talent or children. So I would like to really see a transition from this denying that there is a problem, first of all, and then these harmful excuses and that put blame on women and underrepresented groups to actually fixing the root cause, which is a bias that favors men and undervalues women. And how to do it is no mystery. Simply appoint more women to position of power. <laughs> 
I mean, the effect of female faculty is really great. I mean, studies actually show that students attending all female colleges, so students who get to see females in top positions, who are taught by female professors, they do see overlap between traits of an academic, of a scientist, and traits of, let's say, stereotypical woman. But this is sadly not the case for students attending mixed universities with very few females that get to see very few females at the top. They don't see the same, they don't have the same overlap, mental overlap between stereotype of a scientist and a stereotype of a female, you know. So I'd like to see really initiatives that aim to increase the number of female professors and deans. And we should not rely on the gender ratio to change by itself because research shows that in, for some fields that would mean waiting 300 more years. And I think that that's unacceptable. I mean, we can't really say to women that have not been allowed for centuries to enter universities that they have to still wait 300 more years to be equally represented. I think this is outrageous. So you have looked specifically into, or you are interested in Nordic countries, because of course that's where your affiliation is and you've been living there for a long time and so on. And I actually looked up uh, what it looks like in the Netherlands, where I'm currently, or we are both actually currently living. <laughs> and I saw that with the, yeah, just as recent as 2020, only one of five deans in uh, Dutch universities was female. And even though there are some, well, each university chooses like different strategies to increase the amount of women in the boards and as deans and so on, still this is a, a very slow process. And I'm, well, I was happy to read that uh, my institution, Erasmus University Rotterdam, was actually on among one of the highest with the highest growth uh, when it comes to females in leading position. And that has to do with a program that they launched just a year ago where they actually actively recruit female employees at a, I would say, mid-management level. So that would mm. be like associate professor who already have some, you know, management responsibilities or assistant professor who kind of come up to associate professor or associate to full. So it really targets the very specific group at the bottleneck where it becomes difficult, right, to come into really higher mm. positions. And I'm very curious how that will go in the next couple of years. So they only just started this initiative. But there was also the initiative that made it into the news, which is from the TU Eindhoven, right? So the mm. quotum. Maybe, yeah, would you like to explain that example? Because I thought that was an interesting example. Yeah, so I think, unfortunately, there is this pushback against progressive regulations in academia. And that, as you say, that was the case with the Eindhoven University of Technology, and whose leadership decided to open a limited number of tenure-track positions to exclusively to women in the first six months. And to remedy this situation of very few women in the positions. And the effects were immediate. Within 10 months, the proportion of female professors rose by 3%. So it was very effective. But unfortunately, the Dutch Anti-Discrimination Agency received many complaints about this new policy. And I don't know what's the status of it now. I think it has been paused for now. Yeah, I think they had to kind of... So initially, what I read was that it was meant for five years to only hire women in academic positions. So that was the very strong statement in the beginning but they have kind of stepped back to saying mm -hmm. well a preference for female you know so to kind of reformulate it so that it uh, is not as clear 
yeah, clear cut. But they mm. did make a strong statement, which I really appreciate because it really made the news and people had to talk about it and uh, people had to, you know, take a stand. Uh, so the, their initial goal was that within five years of all contracts that they have that are permanent, so not the, as we said earlier, like one or two years, but actually permanent contracts, that 30% of those should be female of the academic mm. contracts. And that to me, it doesn't seem like a number that is unachievable, right? 30%. <laughs> No, yeah, within five years, yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's also, I think the academia is really this kind of fossilized structure that is really especially against these progressive policies, at least in some countries. I think, for instance, in the US, we have seen waves of affirmative action that were aimed at installing quotas for underrepresented groups, uh, such as black students and women as well. I think in Europe, it's still something that is uh, in academia very um somehow perceived uh, as unjust. Uh, but I think in other areas where women are also underrepresented, such as business, it somehow feels that it's more acceptable. You know, for instance, I recently read that in European Commission in 2012 mandated companies listed on the stock market to actually, by 2020, ensure that 40% of director positions in their companies are occupied by women. So, And that legislation passed by European Commission. And, and I think it has been implemented in France. I think the other countries are still defending themselves from this uh, implementing legislation. But, I mean, to me, it seems that, you know, whenever we know that there is a systematic bias in discrimination in hiring uh, in uh, some community or profession due to prejudice, widely shared prejudice, which is the case in academia, which is the case in business. I mean, this kind of affirmative action and quota regulation seems to be justified to improve the situation. It's very sad that in academia there is such a big pushback along with the denial there is actually a problem. Yeah. And I think something that I would be interested also is to ask, like, where do you see your own personal role in this? Like, how would you like to personally contribute to changing these uh, issues and challenges? I guess doing more, more research on these issues and participating in initiatives that raise awareness of inequalities inside and outside of academia, such as this podcast, for instance. <laughs> so thanks again for having me. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, what some of these big movements teach us is, that, for instance, the Black Lives Matter movement made it quite clear that even today some people are, or quite a few people are unaware of structural racism, which I see as a big failure of education system, that it is like that. And Me Too movement showed that, you know, many educated men are unaware of the extent of discrimination and harassment of women. So, yeah, raising awareness. I think maybe some educational initiatives uh, would be would be also good and something that I would like to see in the future. For instance, I was quite impressed by Californian education system where everybody is actually required uh, as a part of their studies to take a course on systemic racism and gender studies. I think that contributes to a greater awareness in the society of these issues. Then I have one final question for you, Marta. How do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher? Good question again. <laughs> I guess realizing better what causes I care about and doing research, trying to do research that is connected to these causes is something that motivates me. That's my activist part kicking in. <laughs> but I also enjoy the flexibility that being a researcher offers where you can have that you are your own manager and you have high degree of control over your own time. I mean, that's quite privileged, actually. Thank you so much for joining us today and for helping us increase visibility of outstanding social scientists just as yourself, but also of cutting-edge research. And thank you all for listening and talk soon. Thanks for having me.
want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Max Kersten for post-production, Lotte Koeman for logo design and Zeynep Altai for artwork. Make sure to visit our website for bonus materials and to follow us on social media at Researching Diversity Podcast. Stay tuned and talk soon.